All right, we're going to get into the Word tonight. And I believe <laughs> that this will be the final one of renewing the mind. Last week we attempted to do that, and we got into this last subject of all subjects we've been talking about. We've talked about uh, what the mind is, the background, all the background, which I'm not going to go back over again or we'll never get through. Um, and we've talked about having gone through all those things, having learned the principles, having been given the tools. It's all wonderful to have all that, but there's one thing that's necessary before it's going to become a reality in your life. Otherwise, it's going to be just a great series that you heard. There may be a nice set of CDs on your shelf somewhere, and i got a bunch of those, but they're not going to bring change about in your life. And that's what it's about, because it says that we are transformed, that's another word for change, by the renewing of our mind. So this whole series about change, God wants to transform you into the image of Christ. He wants to do it, he's, it's His will, He's to put His Spirit in you to do it, He's now given us understanding from the Word, He's anointed this to do it. We have everything it takes, the only thing that stops it from working is us. And in order to, for this change to come about, we began to look last week that we must adopt an attitude of change. And there are several factors in that. We talked about what an attitude is. An attitude is a predetermined mindset. It's a predetermined way that your mind looks at things. If, you are, if, you are, if you are, something's brought across your path and you've already decided that it's not true, that's not likely to get in because your mind has already refuses to accept it. We interpret things in terms of our attitudes. So if you already believe somebody's a bad person, you're going to interpret the stories you hear about them in light of the attitude that you have about them. So our attitude is crucial because it's already setting what we're going to believe and what we're willing to do. So in order to change, we've got to change our attitude. We have to have an attitude that's flexible and adaptable to change. Otherwise, your mind's not going to come along with the process. And so we began to look at what some of these attitudes, these principles are of change that we need to make sure are built into our lives. And the first thing we saw is you must have a desire, you must have a desire to change. If you don't want to do it, you won't. There's an old story, and I doubt it's true, it's probably not true, but it, it gets the point across, of this young boy that, who saw this older gentleman sitting by the side of the brook and he was fishing and he was catching these big fish and this young boy comes out and he wants to learn to be a fisherman and his father was too busy to teach him and he sees this old man sitting there and he comes up to him and the old man says son what are you doing he says well I, I, don't, I want to be a fisherman he says do you want to really be a fisherman yeah I want to catch fish the way you do he says you really really want to be a fisherman Yes, I really want to be a fisherman. You're willing to do whatever it takes to be a fisherman? I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be a fisherman. He says, all right, come close to me. Let's get down by the water. And he takes, this is a story, it's not true. Takes his hand, puts it on the back of his neck, and shoves his head in the water. And the kids, and finally the male man brings him up out of the water. And goes, what are you doing? He says, when you want to learn to fish as much as you wanted that breath... See, we desire different things in life, and we have different levels of desire. And when you want something as badly as you want that next breath when you can't breathe, that's the degree to which you'll get it, and that determines how fast you'll get it. Most of what holds us back in life is our will. Not God, not the devil. Yes, they can have influences, and yes, God has timing of things, and yes, the devil can oppose us. 
but there's something God gave you we've talked about that God can't violate, the devil can't violate, your wife can't violate, your husband can't violate, no person can violate, your, your, your relatives who lived long ago, your nationality can't violate it, the color of your skin, nothing can violate one thing God gave you, and that's your will. It's one thing that makes you like him more than anything else. He gave you a free will. I had somebody, was in the, it was in the 99, and I, we were giving, doing the counseling, and I was talking to him, and he wanted to get into these debates that some people want to get into with you because they're trying to change the subject. And he asked, you know, well, if God knew they were going to sin, why did, you know, why, did God, why did God let that happen? I love that one. Because the answer is if he didn't give them a free will, their choosing to love him and obey him wouldn't mean anything. And I said, that's the measure of how much God was willing to risk in order to have you. Not only that, God already had a plan in place. He'd already willing to pay the life of His Son to buy you back. I said, that's what this tent's all about. So it's your will that's so important. And it's not just whether you want to do something, it's how much you want to do it. James chapter 5 talks about effectual prayer. But it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. So many times I believe the reason our prayers aren't really answered is because we're not fervent in them. We're praying about things that our heart's really not gotten engaged in. But boy, something happens to you, you get in trouble. You ever notice when you get in trouble how your prayers change? Why? Because your will's more engaged. Your will's more involved in it because now the outcome has a more of a direct effect on you. Therefore, you have more of a passion for the change other than just, hey, it would be nice. Well, the same is true when it comes to these principles. The things that we talked about in the beginning, the, 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 the kingdom of God that's inside of you and all that God's put inside of you and how little of it's really in our life. Well, in reality, the reason why so much little of it's in our life, some of it's because of ignorance because we didn't know what to do, but in many cases it's because we don't really want it that much. When Brother Alam, Christopher Alam was here a few weeks ago and was talking to us, especially privately, about some of the incredible miracles that he's taken place. I know he shared with the congregation, you know, seeing eyeball fill, just fill a socket right in front of him. And, I, you know, I, I knew the answer, but I wanted to hear what he had to say. I said, well, why don't we see more of that in the United States? It's just because we don't need him as much. We have all kinds of other alternatives. The first reaction is we go to the doctor. Nothing wrong with going to the doctor, but we have all kinds of other alternatives that when it comes to going to God for it, we've got some back way out, some other way out. But when you're living in a jungle and you have no, you know, there's no, there's no, you know, Rhode Island hospital, it's not a choice of which hospital am I going to go to. There ain't none. I know it's not good English, but there are no hospitals. There's only either God heals you or you, you die. There's an incentive there. There's a passion there. There's a will involved. And so the first thing we saw was that it's how much you desire change. And that's a good place to look, to check yourself and ask God to check you. The next thing we looked at is you have to be open to change, a, a, a willingness, a teachability. Because often change requires changing how... Well, we're talking about renewing your mind. That means to change how you think. And if you're not willing to... Be, if you're not teachable, you're not going to change how you think. And I find as the older I get, the more you get, tend to get ingrained in your ways. And I remember when I was younger, was around what I called old people. It's amazing how your perspective on what's old is as you get older. It's a very relative term. And I'd look at some of these people, and, and they were very set in their ways. Well, my father did this, my grandfather did this, blah, 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 blah
They're not teachable. God will meet them where they are. God will meet you where they are. But it's put a limit on how much of what's in you that's the kingdom of God that's going to come out. Because the only reason it hasn't come out is not because the devil stopped it, not because you, know, because you haven't known enough of what it is and to bring it out. And so you've got to be willing to change. <laughs> to change, you, it's, I mean, this ought to be pretty simple. To renew your mind, you've got to be willing to change how you think. And sometimes we don't want to. Remember we talked last week, sometimes we want the results to change, but we don't want to change. We want the pressure off, but we don't want to change. The third thing we looked at, which is where we left off, was truth. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. And we got in this and we began this, we spent a little extra time in there. And we're going to pick up in here because this is so important. And I believe in many ways this is the main one. It's how we handle truth in our lives. All kinds of applications to this. <laughs> Somebody made a comment to me about how frustrating it is when you're dealing with Christians because they tell you they're going to do something and then they don't do it. They tell you they're going to be somewhere and then they don't show up. And it's an issue of in integrity. Integrity is a fancy word for keeping your word. And the problem is when we don't keep our word, you know who knows that more than anybody else? You do. That means when you tell somebody you're going to do something and you don't do it, you've just lowered your confidence in your own words in your own eyes. And what you've done is you've lowered, listen to me carefully, you've lowered the importance of truth to you. Because in essence what you've done is you've told a lie. We don't like to say it that way, because when we say it that way, now it's talking at a different level. But when we say, well, I forgot, well, most of the times when we forget, it's because it's not important enough to us. There are certain things we don't forget. We don't forget to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We don't forget the things we want to do. We forget the things that are not important enough to us to remember. Now, I know there are exceptions to that. I understand that. But by and large, when we give our word and we don't keep it, that's because truth doesn't mean as much to us as maybe it once did. Because we're willing to not tell the truth. Or sometimes what we do is we'll mean it when we say it, but then we don't follow through on it. And so we've taken something that was true and we've made it into a lie. Oh, this is really popular, I can tell. We've, we've, we've started with a truth. See, it's good intentions. But once you've given your word, now you have a choice to make of your will of whether you're going to honor your word. And the problem is if we don't honor our word, we're going to have trouble believing that God's going to honor His word. Because we've basically taken truth and we lowered it as an important thing in our life. And we live in a world where Isaiah 50, I think it's 59, 14, is, is rampant, which is, it says, and, and truth has fallen in the streets. The image is it was on the back of an ox cart. The ox cart bumped, and truth, this precious commodity, fell out of the ox cart onto the ground, and it's being trampled by everyone and everything that comes over it. Truth. 
truth. Truth is something that is out there independent of us. And we're either going to live our life seeking it and living by it, or we're going to throw it away and live by whatever we want to live by, which is what our society is doing today. We talked a little bit about this last week. We live in a, in a society where media doesn't have a concept of truth. In fact, truth gets in the way. It gets in the way of the news. I mean, if you listen, learn to listen carefully, just read headlines carefully. They're full of all kinds of opinions. The headlines full of opinions and judgments. They use words that are very that are not just factual words. These are words that are full of opinion and judgment. Very little in the news do you hear is just plain facts or truth. It's colored by people's points of view, perspectives. So it's hard to know what the truth is because you get one channel telling you one thing and another with the same story telling you just the opposite. So neither of them are telling you the truth. They're telling you what they want you to believe about the truth. That's our news media. Then we have our entertainment field, which is based on everything but truth. It's all illusion. In fact, most of them are now computer-generated, and really what that is is they're using computers to create something that's not real. And we live by images. We're moved by images. And we're, it's, 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 I better not get off on this. It's wooing us as Christians in order to lay our will down and our mind down so that we have no awareness of or appreciation or desire for truth and that is preparing us for deception. And we mentioned last week, the Bible says in several places that in the last days, many will be deceived. Christians who have Bibles, who go to churches, who have CDs on their shelf, who have Bibles, you know, stickers on their cars, who, you know, have, have dove pins on their lapels, who have all kinds of books and all kinds of paraphernalia and use the vernacular and use all the terms. They're going to be deceived. Why? Because they've got all that down, but they've lost sight of what truth is. We've lost sight of truth and seeking truth. And you know where it starts? It starts in your own life. I think I shared with you last week the, the quote of Tiger Woods when a, a reporter asked him, how could, you, how could you lie to us when he went through his moral failure? How could you lie to us for so long? And he looked at him and said, because I started out by lying to myself. There's an old line out of Shakespeare by Polonius which says, as advice to his son, above all to thine own self be true. Then thou canst not be false to any man. It starts with being honest with yourself. Honest. You can't even be honest with God if you're not honest with yourself. But again, it starts, am I willing to be... Am I willing to put truth as a higher value in my life than what happens to me. You learn that at an early age when you threw the rock at your sister and it missed her and went through the window and your mom comes out and says, who did it? And you're tempted to come up with all kinds of, well, it slipped out of my hands, we were playing catch, you know, you know all kinds of excuses which are really substitutes for the truth. 
1 John chapter 1. And here's why truth is so important to a Christian, to anybody. Verse 5. 1 John 1, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light. Now, light represents truth. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness. How does that apply to us? If we say we have fellowship, that's relationship with Him. If we say we have a relationship with Him, communion with Him, oh, the Lord told me this, and God spoke to me this, and God, if we say God's speaking to me, I have a relationship, a real vital relationship with God, and walk in darkness, <laughs> John doesn't mince around, we lie and do not practice the truth. You know the most vulnerable area that we are susceptible in to not walk in truth is in our relationship with God. Isn't that interesting? Because the Bible says God knows everything. There's nothing hidden from Him. He's the one with which we have to do. There's nothing hidden before God, and yet He's the one we try to shuck and jive. We try to play games with. We try to, we try to make excuses for ourselves. We try to well, we'll talk about it, God, but we kind of, you know, want to do it in a way that's not exactly head-on, as if He doesn't know. And, but, you know, we're not the first to do it. Adam did it, and Eve did it. They hid from Him, and we talked about this last time. Not only did they hide from Him, they tried to hide their nakedness by making clothes for themselves out of fig leaves or some leaves. And that's what we do with excuses, outright lies, shading the truth, holding a little bit of it back. All of those are efforts to clothe our own nakedness. And what are we clothing our nakedness from? God, who is truth. Now here's the foolishness of that. So what he's saying is if it starts out by not knowing where you are, because he said, if you, if you say you have fellowship with God, but you're walking in darkness, you're fooling yourself. You don't know where you are. See, that's the danger. We start out doing that, and then the only person we end up fooling is ourselves. That's when you become deceived, when you're convinced you're someone or somewhere, when in reality you're not yet. Oh, this is exciting, isn't it? But the Bible says that if you words in you that you shall know the truth, the what? And the truth shall set you free. Many of us want to be free, but we don't want to deal with the truth. And the, the real problem is you can't get free apart from the truth. And this process of changing and renewing our minds is really a process of being delivered and set free, but you cannot be free unless you start with the truth, which is why this is so important. So the Holy Spirit is saying here through John, if you say, if you think, you're just tight with God, but you're walking in darkness not walking in truth, then you're lying to yourself. And you do not practice the truth. 
You can believe in the truth and not practice it. You can believe in the Word of God. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. And not practice it. We're going to see the devil believes in the Word of God more than you do. But he's not going to heaven and he believes in the Word of God. Probably can quote more than most of you can. Quote it to Jesus. It's not believing in it that does it. It's the doing of it that does it. And when you believe it, but you don't do it, James 1.22 says you've deceived yourself. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light or the truth as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. So if you're not walking in truth with yourself, then you're not walking in fellowship. I don't mean you're not saved. I'm not talking about whether you're going to heaven or not. I'm talking about your communion with God, hearing from God. See, the, you know, a lot, lot of people say, I, I'm just not hearing from God. I need answers, but I'm not hearing from God. It starts with what are you willing to hear? That's the first place I check if I've been asking something and I'm not getting an answer. All right, John, are you really willing to hear what God has to say about it, or do you only want to hear certain things? Because even if what he wants to tell me is what I'm willing to hear, he's not going to tell me unless I'm willing to hear everything or whatever he's going to say. I've got to be open. So not only do we have to, it, not only does our fellowship with God affected by it, but verse 5, uh, 6, 7 says, our fellowship with one another is affected by it. We can't walk in right relationship with each other if we're not walking in truth. That's where a lot of marriages are. They're not walking in truth with each other. Either the words they're speaking aren't true, or what's more subtle, they're not saying things that are true. Intimacy in relationship with husband and wife, with friends, and with God always has to be based on truth. Because if you can't tell your spouse the truth in love, if you can't tell them the truth, that means you don't trust them. And if you can't listen to the truth, that means you don't trust them. The other thing I've learned is there's a parallel. I don't know why I'm off on this, but we're going to just follow it. There's a direct parallel between my relationship with my wife and my relationship with God. I'll put it this way. I can't be wide open to Him and walking in truth with Him if I'm not also open to her and walking in truth with her. So that's, that's a little hard to get. Well, let's turn over to chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. <laughs> now, you can disagree with that, but that's what God says about it. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So I can't say I love God and hate you. Put it another way. My love for God 
the degree to which I love God is measured by the degree to which I love my wife and I love you. I can feel the emotion. People can feel the emotion towards God and be angry at their spouse. They can feel the emotion, but that's not love. You understand love's not an emotion. Human love is. But the love God's talking about is an act of your will. It's an openness of your heart. And so back in chapter 1, he's saying if we, that the way we walk in truth with ourselves, honest with ourselves, honest with God, and honest with each other determines the degree of our relationship, our intimacy, our closeness with God and with one another. We talked about what truth, the word truth means. It's a Greek word aletheia, which means openness. It means nothing hidden. And again, we've used before that end of chapter 2 of Genesis, they were open. There was nothing hidden. They were naked and were not ashamed. The moment they become, get in sin, again, they hide themselves. And now they're trying to hide so things aren't open. Now, this applies this way also. Let's, let's go on and read. Verse 8. Well, verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. I won't ask for a raise of a show of hands, but how many of you, you want your sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus? In order to do that, you've got to walk in light. Truth. Here's why. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin... Now see, very few of us would just say, I don't. No, we wouldn't just say, I never sin. We'd all admit we sin. The problem is, when it comes to the specific sin, how do we characterize it in our mind? Well, I'm having a problem with this. I'm I'm having a problem with pornography. I'm having having a problem with with food. I'm having a problem with TV. I'm having a, a problem with it. You understand, I was raised in this. Yeah, those things all may be true, but the way to get free of it isn't to recognize it as a problem. That's the way the world treats it. It may be a problem, but at its root, it's sin. We don't want to call it sin, but when you understand what the Word says, the only way to get free of it is to call it what God calls it. Because here's why. See, that's what we do. See, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say, I don't sin, but what we do is we take our sin and redefine it or characterize it so we take the real sting out of it. And when we take the real sting out of it, now we can keep it in the cupboards of our life and even open it up and dust it off every once in a while. Visit it every once in a while. But it's out of sight, but it's still there. Because instead of calling it what it is, we're saying, well, I'm struggling with this. See, that's the word, and I do it too, I'm struggling with it implies I'm in the process of getting out of it, but doesn't tell me where I am in that. I've acknowledged that I'm doing it. I've acknowledged that it's wrong, but I'm not out of it yet. There's no power to get out of it in the Bible terms by admitting you've got a problem. There may be in your, you know, your counselor's office, but in God's office, the counselor that's in you, the prescription is the way you get free of it is to call it what God calls it. Now, the reason we're afraid to call it what we're call it is because we don't like to admit that's what we've done because we're afraid of what that's going to mean. But you don't understand what the Word says because here's what the Word now says. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, then the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, you can't confess something you haven't admitted you've done. When you blame other people, they get forgiven. See, this is what happens. We sin. We do, don't we? Okay. We've sinned. We've committed a sin. And, and, we, and now we realize what we've done. And here's the choice we have. What am I going to do with that? Your unrenewed mind will kick in and give you all kinds of excuses. Blame people. Well, you don't understand the pressure I've been under. You don't understand who I've got to live with. You don't understand what my background is. You don't understand. You don't understand. All those are excuses. They may be real, but they're excuses. An excuse is a poor trade-off for getting free. An excuse is a justification for keeping it in your life. And what the excuse does is it makes you a little comfortable with it. That's putting it in the closet. So it's kind of out of sight because I've acknowledged I've got this problem, but that doesn't free you of it. This is worth hours of counseling tonight. If we confess our sins, remember we talked about confession, we talked about what that word means. One of, it means to own it. I did it. I did it. I, and that's that word, sinned. But look what happens when you accept the full responsibility and call it what it is, what God calls it. Look what happens. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Notice he doesn't forgive problems. Notice he doesn't forgive our past as an excuse. He doesn't forgive our struggles. He forgives sins. If we confess it, he's faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means scrub you up, clean you up as if you never did it. And the only way he can do it is when you acknowledge what it is in God's sight. The confession of it for what it is is when you bring it to the cross. The cross is a place of freedom. The cross is the place of deliverance. The cross is where it was paid for. It wasn't paid for in the counselor's office. Nothing wrong with going to counseling, but they can't forgive your sin. They can help you feel a little better about having it. They can help you cope with it a little bit. And there are times you've got to do that until you've processed it out. But ultimately, for some of these things like pornography and all those things which are clearly seen in God's eyes, ultimately the only place of deliverance is to bring it to the cross because at the cross is where it was paid for. And it was paid for with His blood. And it's His blood that cleanses you not words of comfort. They can make you feel better about having it. They can help you get, hold on, comfort you, but they can't free you of it. The only thing that can free you of it, because what's holding you in it, is the guilt. 
The guilt is the hold that Satan has on you to keep you in it. And the only way that thing is powerful enough to break that hold is the power of the blood that, that's wonderful to sing about, but the reason the blood works is the blood paid for the guilt for your sin. But that blood cannot be appropriated until you admit to yourself and to God, you did it, you're responsible, it was a choice you made. And that's where the freedom is. And it doesn't come any other way because that's the way God has prescribed it. Truth. All right. The next attitude which we'll quickly look at. It's action. There's an old expression that Ed Cole, who had a men's ministry, used to have. Change is not change until you change. Profound, isn't it? Change is not the same thing as the intention to change. Change is not the same thing as the willingness to change. Change is not the same thing as the desire to change. Those are all necessary. We've looked at them. But it's not change until you've actually changed. And what we often do is we recognize we need to change. We want to change. And we think that because we want to, we're willing, and we desire, that that's the same thing as change. But it's not change till you act on it. James chapter 1. Excuse me, James chapter 2, verse 14. What is a prophet, my brother, and if someone says he has faith, but that faith is, and, but does not have works, in other words, does not act on his faith, can that faith save him? We're not talking about whether you go to heaven here. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart, be in peace, be blessed, be warm and be filled, but you don't give them the things that they need for their body, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it does not have corresponding works, is dead. Someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. This is what I mentioned earlier. Even the demons believe, and they're better than most Christians. They tremble at the sight of God, the presence of God. Demons do it, but they're not saved. Why? because they don't act on what they believe. Don't you know, a foolish man, that faith without works, corresponding action, is dead? Wasn't our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Don't you see that his faith was working together with his works, and by his works his faith was made complete? What James is saying there is this. You can believe with all your heart that God wants to heal you. You can believe with all your heart that God wants to save you. You can believe with all your heart a promise God made, but until you act on that promise, your belief just stays within you. It's when you act on it that you, that you bring into reality here, your faith becomes real in reality here. There's just something happens when you step out on that, what you believe, and act on it. Because until you do it, there's always still the potential that you're not going to go forward with it. In the same way, change is only an intention until you actually do something in line with that change. Galatians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, I'm sorry. 
One of the struggles that people have sometimes in studying the Bible or reading different writers or listening to different teachers is you'll have some people that say on one side, well, you know, uh, the Spirit of God is in us to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ. God is at work in us, both to will and to do His good pleasure. So if the Spirit of God is inside of us. Then you see other scriptures and other people say, well, you know, you've got to do it. You've got to begin. Paul says, put off that. Do this. You know, don't sin. Love your brother. Your commandments are things we're to do. And yet, in other places, it's the Spirit of God is doing it. How does that work out? How does that reconcile? Well, the, the book of Ephesians is wonderful of that because the first half of the book of Ephesians talks about what God's put in you, including the Holy Spirit. But now look what he says here. This is in chapter 3, Colossians. I'm sorry, I'm going to talk about Ephesians. It's Colossians I'm talking about. Is that where I told you to turn? Well, Colossians is kind of a mini Ephesians, so it's, it holds true there too. Chapter 3, verse 1. If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above. That's part of renewing your mind, not on the things of Why? Look at this. Look at the tense of these verbs. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You've been joined to Christ, and Christ is in God. So you are one with Christ, and you are one with God. So whatever Christ is, you are. If He's righteous, you're righteous. If He's free, you're free. If He's a child of God, you're a child of God, because you're in Him, you're joined to Him. How can your right hand be something your left hand isn't? If you, if, if you are something your right hand is, and your left hand is. Okay. For when Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. First John chapter 4 says, and when we see Him, we will discover that we're like Him. Now, that's what God's done. That's a sample of what He's already done. Past tense. But look at verse 4. Therefore, as a result of that, put to death your members, which are on earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, in which you used once, once walked when you lived in them, which means you don't live in them now, right? Now, do not lie to one another, but, 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 okay, verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. So we're to put those off. We're to put those activities aside. So the reason we can put them aside is Christ has been, made, has been put in us. So once Christ is in us, all those things we looked at in the beginning that were deposited in us when we came to Christ, the life of Christ, the Spirit of God, the power to do, all that's in you now. So that potential's in you. But the potential can't do anything until you take that life that's in you, that potential in you, and you begin to act as if it's so. In the situations of life, every day you come across opportunities to either put Christ on or put your old person on. You come across opportunities to either act like Him or act like your nasty old self. To do what you want to do or do what He in you wants to do. You can't put on something that's not yours. But just because you have it doesn't mean you put it on. Before I came tonight, I looked in my closet. There were several suits I had a choice to put on. Guess what? You can tell which one I chose. I chose my black one. There's a tan one in there. I own it, but it's not going to make any difference here. Why? Because I didn't choose to put that one on. But I can't put on something I don't have. But unless I put it on, it doesn't do any good. You following me? So, all this is in you. This is what we learned in the beginning. But in order for it to come to the outside, there's a part you have to play. 
And part of renewing your, is renewing your mind, but then you've got to act on what you're renewing. You've got to begin to do it. And as you begin to do it, you begin to release that life in you more and more and more and more and more. It starts out with a step of faith. You just do it because he says to do it. You don't have to feel it. In fact, most cases, you don't feel it. But you begin to act like Christ in that situation. You begin to act like him. What would he do? How do I, how would he handle this situation? You begin to draw on him inside of you. Not you, him. You don't have the strength. You don't have the ability. You don't have the love. Apart from him, I'm a selfish, self-centered idiot. I am. But he's at work in me. So I've got to learn when I'm facing a situation to now turn on the inside and say, all right, I've died. Christ, you're in me. I need you to act in me. But then I don't go sit in my lazy chair and wait for him to go do it. I've got to take him there. I got to open my mouth. See, he's in me. But he needs to use my mouth. He needs to use my hands. He needs to use my feet. And as you begin to act, that's why you'll have a more personal relationship with him. As you begin to act and begin to act like him, you'll find you'll have experiencing him from the inside coming out of you. So we are to put on these things. Verse 9 says, Therefore don't lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in the knowledge according to his, the image of Christ. That's renewing your mind. Okay. Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, he's not saying this is how you become the elect of God, because you are a child of God, because you do belong to him. The elect of God, holy and beloved, that's who we are. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so all, so must you do. That's how you act on it. And the last attitude we're going to look at as we close here, the fifth attitude, is with every kind of change, the important change, there's always, and I don't like this word, pain. In some gyms, I'm told, I don't go to gyms, I have I exercise in the basement. There's an expression, no pain, no gain. And that's very true spiritually. And this is what keeps so many people from changing. They want to, they're willing to, they desire to, until they come up to paying the price, paying the cost. Because in order to change, you've got to let go of what you have now. There's always a price to pay. It's Change, growth is always an exchange of what you have now for what you can have. And we get stuck in our growth. It's usually here. Pain is inherent in change. John 12, 24 says, Unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, and dies, and dies, and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it bears much, much fruit. There's no way to bear fruit without dying to what you had. There's nowhere to bear fruit without dying to who you are. There's no way to really know Christ without dying to who you are. John said, I must decrease so he can increase. You can't both occupy the same space at the same time. So if you want more of him, there has to be less of you. In Mark 8, Jesus said, whoever's willing to lose his life for my sake will save it. Now, here's what's so the most important part of paying the price. It's when you pay it. 
what we're doing this, turn to Luke 14. It's when you pay it. It's much better to pay the price up front than when you get to the challenge. Luke 14. Jesus is talking about the price here. 14.28 For which of you, verse, verse 27, he says, Whoever does not bear up his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish it. All who see it and begin and mock him, saying, This man began to build who was not able to finish. What a lot of us have done. The reason a lot of us don't finish is we don't count the cost before we start. What king is there who goes out to make war against another king who doesn't sit down, first of all, and consider whether he's able with his 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or while the other is still a great way off, he sent a delegation and asked for a condition of peace. Likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You've got to count the cost before you pay the cost. It's harder to make the decision in the middle of battle. We'll close with Philippians 3. Paul, this is Paul's testimony of what he went through with this process of change and of paying the Christ. Verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. There's an exchange. Yes, indeed, I count all things for loss for the surpassing value the New King James says the excellence, but the NASB says the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He made an exchange for everything he had. If you look before this, you'll talk, see his reputation, how people, what people thought of him, what he was able to do, his place in society, his own confidence in himself, his confidence in his own desire, his passion, the things he did, his whole life. He said, I took it all and I counted it as loss compared to what I was going to gain through knowing Christ Jesus the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and gained them as but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness which was from, uh, uh, from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Why? That I may know Him. You can't know Him intimately and hold on to yourself. It's a process, but it starts with an act of your will. And the power of His resurrection. Oh, this is getting better. And the... Oh. Oh, wait a minute. The fellowship of His suffering. Oh, being conformed to His death. The death He's talking about here is death to Himself. The only avenue that the devil has to get a hold of you is you. The only part of you that gets upset, mad, impatient, strikes out is you. And you is supposed to have died. The Christ in you never gets impatient. The Christ in you never gets mad at somebody. The Christ in you never wants to plow through the person in the stoplight in front of you because they don't want to move ahead fast enough. The, pers- the, the Christ in you never wants to snap at your wife. The Christ in you never... The Christ in you is patient, loving, kind, long-suffering, all the things that are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain by any means the, out, the resurrection from the dead. You know when Jesus died on the cross? He didn't die on the cross on Golgotha. He didn't die on the cross in, in Pilate's courtroom. He didn't die on the cross. He died on the cross in the garden. 
when three times he said, not my will, but your will be done. In that garden before God, in honest truth and openness, he made the choice to be obedient and lay his life down. The pain and the agony that he went through was in the garden, not on the cross. By the time he got to the cross, by the time he was scourged, by the time he went through all those physical things, he'd already endured the pain of dying within. He paid the price before he went to the cross. If you'll take these principles and you'll begin to apply them in your life, you'll find the Spirit of God in you wants to bring about the change, and he will bring about the change. Let's pray. Father, we've heard so much in this time that we've had together learning about renewing our mind. Some of it we'll remember, some of it we'll never remember. Some of it your spirit may bring back to us when we need it. But we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to open your word and allow you by your spirit to give us understanding of ourselves, understanding of your will, understanding of your ways of change, and understanding, Lord, of what you've called us to be and how we can come to that place. And now, Father, as we begin to close this subject and prepare to learn to something else, we ask you to take the things that we've heard. We thank you that our confidence is not in ourselves, it's not in our memory, but it's in the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That when we need it, he will bring back to our remembrance the things that you've taught us. We're so grateful for that you care enough about us to give us understanding and instruction. Now help us to apply this in our lives as we learn to live the rest of our lives and walk the rest of our lives before you. In Jesus' name, amen.